Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Abstract Podcast. Today, we're talking about fast food brackets, the Golden Globes, Valentine's Day gifts, baby making, and we're going to talk about eschatology. All right, so let's get into it. <laughs> the baby making part, people. Hey, turn that up. <laughs> so, one of our—I don't know if you call him a friend—mutual acquaintance, John Barber. Um, he's a Facebook friend. He does this thing where I think he started it, and it just took off so mm-hmm. incredibly well that he just—he just keeps on doing it. It's called the Bracket of Champions, and they even have their own website. I forget what the first one was. Do you remember? Uh, well, uh, no. I think it was old movies or old TV shows. There was one like that, but yeah. I, I don't know exactly. So it's the same idea as like a, a March Madness bracket. Yep. My McAfee software keeps popping up. Well, not it's relentless. It's like the March Madness. You just fill out mm-hmm. the bracket, and then like they vote, and you see who wins, and down, right. down, down. So they're actually pretty fun to do. So the latest one that they came out with was fast food. Mm-hmm. And this one really piqued my interest because I have a special place in my heart for fast food. Absolutely. Me and my brother Luke agree on this. Sometimes you just get in the mood for Little Caesars in a way that even like a steakhouse could not satisfy. Absolutely. Not everyone shares that affinity. But so we hope to be going through these the next couple of weeks on the podcast. The first, uh, it's like the top left tier of the bracket. Colin, I'm going to ask you for your picks. Yes. And I'm going to comment as well. At the number one seed... We have McDonald's up against White Castle. I don't know White Castle. Taking? I'm taking McDonald's just because they got good ice cream. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I would also take McDonald's. A lot of people love to hate McDonald's. I don't. Great coffee though, too. I don't mind McDonald's. I mean, they yeah. do have the like the McCafe, so you can actually get mocha, espre- yeah. espresso, yeah. cappuccino. It's not that good, but it is there. So. Also, they have the the little dollar chicken sandwich. Yeah, the chicken sandwich things. is solid. Yep. The double cheeseburgers are not good, no, in my opinion. No, cheeseburgers chicken are no good. always decent. Yep. Good chicken. All right, so we take McDonald's. In the second slot, we have Dairy Queen as the three seed with Jimmy John's as the six seed. Who Dairy, you got? Dairy Queen all the way. Ooh, this one's tough for me. Yeah. What do you like about Dairy Queen? Uh, the cookie dough and chocolate chip cookie dough blizzards, as well as any of their food. I like their chicken fingers. Burgers, mainly their ice cream, though. That's true. I, I guess, uh, yeah, Dairy Queen does have, they have really good ice cream and food. I've only eaten at Jimmy John's like once, so I. Yeah, I don't think I've ever eaten at Jimmy John's. Don't know I can so. vote in good conscience here. All right, the four seed versus five seed, down to the nitty gritty. Little Caesars at the four seed versus Firehouse Subs. This one went to triple overtime, but Firehouse did edge out Little Caesars. Oh, my Caesars. goodness. To me, this is a, yeah. no, this is a no contest. <laughs> like, Little Caesars, where can you get that much good food and cheese and sauce it's, for $5? Well, see, that's the thing. When I first saw Little Caesars, I was like, oh, that's easy. But then I saw it was paired with Firehouse. Anybody else, they're winning. But yeah, with Firehouse, right. I'm going to have to take them. Firehouse could go deep into your bracket. Yeah. And this one, to me, was just laughable. Burger King versus Panda Express. And they ranked Burger King as number two. Is that right? Yeah, that's what they got there. Um, and Panda Express as seven. Who would you pick? Well, I've never had Panda Express. Oh, are you serious? No, so I honestly have no I'm I'm, I'm going to be agnostic about this one. Oh, my goodness. Let me just tell you. You can just take my word for it. Panda Express, Panda Express is probably going to my final four at least. Panda Express is good. It's like the China Walk in Seneca okay. or the food court. Yeah. Asian food at the mall, but it, it's fast food, and it's so good. It's amazing. Way better than uh, Burger King. <laughs> I didn't even know what it was up against. All right. Actually, let's just go through the whole left side because right. this is fun. <laughs> so we're on the bottom left now. Taco Bell with the one seed versus Tim Hortons at the eight seed. Again, Interesting this, matchup. Yeah, this one's a no question, though. It's kind of got the Bell. southwest yeah. and the north. Taco Bell all the way. <laughs> yeah. Tim Hortons put up a good fight with their Horton nuts, but Taco Bell takes it out. Amen to that. Yeah. How do you love Taco Bell? Yep. All right. The number three seed, Arby's, taking on the number six, Whataburger. Again, this one's easy. Arby's, they got the turkey gyro every day. Have you eaten a Whataburger? No. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. I have only been to one Whataburger, and I, I feel like it. so much of this depends on your experience yeah. with the restaurant because the yeah, Whataburger I went to was an old, grimy restaurant. It was like a brand-new McDonald's. It's like, 
like a boutique in here. But yeah, I'd also have to go with Arby's. Okay. Number four seed is Popeyes. Number five is In N Out Burger. Who you got? In N Out. Bottomless fries. Delicious. That's a good pick. I've never eaten at a Popeyes. Have you? No. <laughs> I love this. Oh, number two seed is Wendy's. Number seven is Culver's. Have you eaten at a Culver's? I think one time. Yeah. But I'm going to have to go with Wendy's. Yeah, I would also take Wendy's. Wendy's has surprise. See, to me, this is the difference. I actually like Wendy's better than McDonald's. Yeah. For one thing, they have the four for four. So you can get chicken nuggets, fries, a drink, and a sandwich for four bucks. And that's like unheard of. Yeah. But when you get a sandwich at Wendy's, you get a junior bacon cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. It's like well put together. They've yeah, got bacon. Good. Yeah, it's very good. Burger, uh, mayonnaise, lettuce, tomato, ketchup. I mean, it's it's solid. It's not like a double cheeseburger at McDonald's for sure. All right, that's the left side of the bracket. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how the public votes versus our opinions, and then we'll get into the right side maybe next week. We've got things over there yep. like, I mean, Chick Fil A is a one seed. <laughs> that's the Lord's Chicken. And yes, it is. There's some I don't know. Adobo, Quadobo. Yeah, I don't know that one. You got Jack in the Box. You've got Subway, Zaxby's, KFC, Moe's. Some good stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's some good stuff over there. Moving on to our second item of the day, the Golden Globes. Ah, yes. Uh, I don't know a lot about the Golden Globes, but it does appear that the nominations are up. What exactly, what's different than this and other film festivals? Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. Yeah, because I, I don't really know either. I do know that there. this is the 78th annual Golden Globes, celebrating the best in television and film. The nominations were announced Wednesday. Okay. So looking through this, did you recognize many of their picks and would you um, agree with those picks? Yeah, I don't feel like I'm in a position to agree or disagree. Yeah. But I, I, you know, we can go down through and say if we if we like things that we've seen. So one thing that I see on here from uh, the musical and comedy section, Eugene Levy, I don't know who that is, he nominated Schitt's Creek. And I've been hearing a lot about Schitt's Creek as far as getting awards. Oddly enough, I actually have watched a significant amount of Schitt's Creek mostly because people in my circles are fans of it, and so I'm in the room and okay. we watch it together. I'm not a big fan of the show, and I'm really surprised it's winning awards, but apparently it is. Have you seen any of it? Okay, I have not on my own, but on a teacher work day, some of the teachers put on one episode over lunch break, and I kind of had the same impression. It's kind of like, there's a couple funny lines. Eh, move on. Yeah. Uh, not something I would have gone back and watched on my own. Yeah. It's kind of like stereotypical super yeah. rich people find themselves living in a motel out in the boondocks. Okay, I didn't even so know that context. Kind of funny okay, well, premise, that makes a lot. Really spoiled kids, and anyway, it's okay. Makes a lot more sense now from that little bit I saw. All right. Um, do you see anything else that you recognize down no, there? No, I, um, I saw that The Crown got some awards. Um, I like The Crown. I've only seen maybe five episodes. But so far, so good. Um, honestly, other than that, I didn't see very much that I even recognized. So one of them is Best Performance by an Actor in a, tele- a Television Series. Um, Bob Odenkirk is nominated from Better Call Saul. I don't know that one. You've not seen Better Call Saul? I have yeah. not. Better Call Saul is one of my, I think, favorite TV shows. At least, I don't know, over the last couple of years. And I say over the last couple of years because it's actually taken me I just, oddly enough, I just finished the last episode before you walked in. I was watching Netflix as I was eating my lunch, and I watched the last episode. It's only four seasons. But yeah, I really enjoyed Better Call Saul and Bob Odenkirk, who, fun fact, was in the running to play Michael for The Office. But then they went Uh, with uh, um, Steve Carell. Steve Carell. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I I like Better Call Saul. Let's see. What else we got? Ozark. Never saw that. Me and Alicia watched some of Ozark. It just it got kind of raunchy, and we didn't really finish it. Okay. I saw. I recognize one that I have been wanting. It's been on my to-watch list, um, Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah? I haven't heard. Um, that one's on Apple TV, though, so I don't know if I'll ever get to see it. Sure. Because I don't have Apple TV. Um, um, but other than that, that's about all I recognize. Unorthodox. We watched a few episodes of that. It was mildly interesting. There's another one I wanted to point out. Um, man, there's so many that 
so many people i don't know how many can win you should can yeah. you quickly google how many can win i don't know there's a lot well there's but, only like five per category and there's maybe i don't know uh, I, I bet categories. i bet they pick one from each category yeah that would make sense somewhere on here i've seen soul i think it was under oh, oh yeah, yeah it is yeah. best motion best picture, motion picture yeah. animated so the options are the crudes onward over the moon soul and wolf makers i would pick soul for sure it's all it's only the only one i've seen but if you guys are out there wanting a movie to watch tonight, go watch Soul. I just thought it was brilliant. It has just like the magic and the just beauty of Pixar films. It's, it's Pixar, general. right? Okay, yeah. that's what I was going to say. So usually so Pixar made like Coco, Cars, Inside Out. It's yeah. very much They've done, they've it's done very much in the realm of Inside Out. So it's talking about, um, well, it's kind of a play on words, soul as in like jazz music, but then also as in like about half the movie is like a little ghost-like character, which is someone's soul, trying to kind of find its way to heaven or stay on earth and kind of those. But it's really, really good. Yeah, I remember seeing someone, because I have never seen it, but I remember I saw someone, they just said, I right, said, so guys, don't get worked up about the Gnosticism and soul. Just go watch it because <laughs> it's that good. Interesting. Yeah, I don't feel like it's overly Gnostic. Oh, and then best original score, um, Tenet makes the list. I don't know if I thought the score was... Good or bad in Tenet, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed the film Tenet. I thought that was really fun. I've never seen it. I've been wanting to see it. Though. Yeah. I've heard raving reviews. Very confusing. Okay, so that's the Golden Globes. And one other article that I wanted to draw your interest to, and I haven't read this, so um, beware. That's always a good disclaimer. Top 20 Valentine's Day gifts for every budget. This was published on February the 3rd by Julianne Ross. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and there's never been a better time to show the people you love that you care. That's debatable. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so here are their gifts. We'll look down through and see if there's anything interesting. Um, For $11.80 on Amazon, you can get a knock-knock, what-I-love-about-you-fill-in-the-blank journal. Hmm. I would not have led with that, to be sure. (laughs) I don't think my I would have led this uh, gourmet stainless steel manual pasta maker for forty six ninety five off oh Amazon. Um, okay, so, that's a good gift. Here's a yeah. you got a necklace, um, a, a card game, <laughs> Yoda one for me with a picture of Yoda, an eye mask, something I'm not gonna read, <laughs> a candle for thirty four dollars, homesick scented candle, the pasta maker. There's a breakfast in bed tray, beard balm, a champion jacket, a fondue pot. Yeah, I don't mean to be the voice of negativity here, but I think I'm going to go on my own this year <laughs> and find my own gift. So far, uh, unimpressed by the list. Yeah, the the gourmois stainless stainless steel manual pasta maker. $50 is kind of a lot to drop. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to get flowers, too. Then you're probably gonna be running up, and and you're gonna go out. That's probably a hundred dollars on a college budget. That's tough, but a pasta maker, I think, they can be actually really, really cool. Yeah, for sure. I think that one, that one, I think wins. All right, so I have to ask you: Are you the kind of guy who plans the Valentine's Day weeks and months in advance, or are you more of a a day of make some plans? Um, more of like I wouldn't say months. I would say weeks actually this year was more months mainly because i remodeled our bathroom and i saved our old bathtub and i sold it for valentine's day money so (laughs) i guess in that way that's so thoughtful so what are you gonna do with the money use it for valentine's day to buy stuff but you don't know what i don't well okay i have ideas but i have not quite completely fleshed them out although they've begun begun to but more than anything it's just to go out for a good okay night to eat did you know that waffle house does a candlelight dinner on Valentine's Day. I just found where we're going. <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, I didn't. What would your wife say if you did that? Um, would she be impressed? She wouldn't be impressed, but I think she'd be a good sport, um, but secretly be dis- very disappointed. A little, a little disappointed. My wife would, um, yeah, same. She'd be a good sport about it, but she'd yeah. probably have had hope for a little, yeah. little something else. It's kind of like, yeah, we're on a college budget, but still. <laughs> but Applebee's. Yeah. Right. I've actually been working on a Valentine's Day gift. It's a project that I've been working on. The idea came to me like a month ago. So I've been working on oh, it since go. then. And I think over the span of me working on it, she's already figured out what it is. So it's a little disappointing. Mm-hmm. But it's still going to be that nice. It happens. It's still yeah. going to be nice. Yeah. 
And yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll go out somewhere. Um, we probably will. All yeah, right. Valentine's Day is it's it's fun. Um, but moving on to maybe some other topics. Um, baby, oh, yeah, baby making. So this was a really interesting study um, that recently came out. Um, so the study is we'll have the link in the show notes, I believe. Um, yes, but that can be arranged. Yeah, but the study is from the Institute for Family Studies. Um, which you should definitely check out their work. They do some good stuff. Um, this one's by Lyman Stone. But uh, what they were, they've been analyzing the um, fertility rates throughout the world for uh, especially the last 10 years. Um, and they found there's some really, I, I found it really fascinating, some of the findings that this study um, found, which um, one some of the big things that they found is that um, – the population of women who might have kids um, changed dramatically over the last decade. So from 2008 to now, the um, the fertility rates from from 2008 until now, um, if you would if you would run from from their according to their study, the amount of how many babies would have been born if trends had remained the same from previous um, in the last 10 years, the answer would be 5.8 million babies. Um, so births in the U.S. typically tend to run around 4 million per year. Um, so that's basically like saying in the last decade there would have been only, with the drop in. Only 4 million per year? Yeah. Which is, it's, it's, that does seem a little bit low. I guess there's only th- 400 million people. That's, yeah, and that's just the United States. Okay. Um, okay, yeah, that, pro- that probably makes sense. Too. But it has dipped. So in that time, the, the fertility rate dropped. It could, if it would not have dropped, there'd be 5.8 million more babies born in the last 10 years. Okay. So, what that means is, if you would do the math, it, you could have, if you would have kept that rate the same, but skipped a year and a half, we would still have the same amount of babies that we have today. So it was almost like we went for a year and a half without, without any new babies. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Which is quite something. Um, and in fact, uh, this wasn't in the study, but in 2020, that was one of the few years where I believe, if I'm correct, there actually more people died than were born in the United States, which has not happened in I forget how long. Um, but that, again, was accentuated due to COVID. Um, yeah. So but, this study, yeah, forgive me, I did not get to read very much of it. Is this talking about just the U.S. or the world? This is talking about the U.S. Oh, okay. Yes. Um Huh. Yeah, the, the study was mainly on the U.S. and how um, different ethnic minorities have, how it's affected them. Um, and so it found that primarily, um, or for ethnic minorities in America, birth rates have fallen sharply. Um, so, like, Hispanic births were down around 2 million. Um, black were down by 860,000. Asian down 211,000. And Native Americans down 81,000. Um, which... Uh, if trends would have continued as they were before this, we would be looking at majority um, majority would not be white in America if babies would have continued as trends would have continued as they were. Interesting. So, but I mean, it's still not going to be majority white in a few years, right? No. Like that's not going to no. derail that, right. Right? right? Yeah, right. No. Okay. My other question is, Oops. text message. Would would you expect? I'm trying to think how to say this. Like. We're a fairly new country, mm-hmm. so is it almost like, you know, we started it, like, you know, just kind of the Native Americans that were here right. and the colonists, and then we kind of grew, 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 grew. Like, have we plateaued, or is it something that goes up and down all the time and we're way down? From the little bit of trends that I've seen, it goes up and down, but it had been climbing substantially, but now it is definitely not climbing fairly substantially. Um, and, and that's actually more than just a U.S. trend. That's around the world um, kind of trend. And so, like, what will be fascinating now is looking um, looking to the future with how COVID will impact this. And so um, another study that was kind of along the same lines that was really interesting to read was how COVID or how, how pandemics have historically shaped inf- or shaped fertility rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, in 1918, in the influenza outbreak, so initially in the first, um, you know, year or two after the pandemic and during the pandemic, birth rates severely declined. So, you know, there's the jokes at the beginning of COVID that there's going to be, babies, right? right, that yeah. you're going to have a big spike. But actually, based off of all these historical models and mapping those on to the current pandemic, most likely what we'll see is a, 
another drop in fertility rates until in a couple of years, there's usually a spike again because um, I forget what they exactly termed it, but it's a common theme after they've gone, after you've gone through something traumatic like this and, and a lot of times lost people you've loved, um, what tends to happen is a, a you get a spike in wanting to find new attachments in those same kind of familial relations. Hmm. And so then, in about, usually a couple years after something, you know, like a pandemic hits, then you will see fertility rates shoot up substantially again. So, Wow, that's so interesting. It was very fascinating. And, and um, you know, kind of their, the conclusion of, of um, some of these studies, well, they had, they had an interesting figure um, of the ideal versus the actual fertility rates. And so, um, and so the ideal fertility in, in, um, from 2006 to 2018 was normally right around for if you were, um, you know, a non-Hispanic white person, uh, 2.5 was like the ideal fertility rate. And I would be curious, so like, like, currently how like do they generate 7. an ideal number? What does that even mean? Well, I think that the ideal number is, it's based off a lot of how they talked of, this was more looking at the economic impacts of how population growth helps economy. Okay. And so they were tying this into, um, they linked several other studies which have shown that um, as fertility rates increase, so does your economic prosperity, mm-hmm. um, as well as just social aspects like diversity and and um, military recruitment. And um, because when you don't have as many babies or your population starts to decline, you're more typical to go into like a type of draft and you're more likely to have a lower amount of jobs and lower amount of people to fill the jobs. And so the one of the characteristics of a flourishing society is that they have a high fertility rate. Um, and so the ideal fertility rate is that one that is they predict is the most towards sustaining and yet right. growing your society. So um, wow. they said, you know, the, the societal effects of, of um, uh, well, I'll just like some of their conclusion is these societal effects are of secondary importance to what low fertility means in the lives who experience, quote unquote, missing births. Um, this could be ranging from loneliness to aging alone to less happiness. Um, and the consequences of low fertility today will echo through Americans' increasingly empty homes for decades to come, leaving millions more people isolated and adrift from wider society as they age. So kind of a little bit of a stark tone, um, but actually it's kind of funny because it reminded me of a song I just heard the other day um, by a Minneapolis band called uh, Romantica. But they, they have a song called How to Live in the Modern World. I don't even think it's, I don't remember if I liked it or not, but I remember the one line is, um, a, there's like listing off all these, I guess, axioms to live by in the modern world. But the one was turn off the TV and go make a baby. So I guess this is, I don't know if they had this study in mind, but <laughs> that's the idea. Uh, and the modern man does have less babies um, right now, it looks like anyway. So so one thing that you said kind of caught my attention, especially um, you said something about like as we collectively, well, maybe more people died this year mm-hmm. or for whatever reason we had you know less children. And so you said something about like we want to find something to create a new attachment mm-hmm. with. I've lately been just really fascinated by, um, I don't really know any other way to say it than just levels of analysis. So, like, at what level do you look at things? So, I mean, you can go all the way down to the individual. You Mm -hmm. can look at the person. Or right now I'm taking a class called family therapy. And so we actually look at the unit of the family. And so, like, you're, you're examining each member within the family. But then you're also talking about kind of how the unit operates as a whole. And then you can go all the way up so far as to look at it, I think kind of what you were just doing as as the nation, almost as a mm-hmm. person. You know what I mean? And so like the nation right. experiences loss and wants to form a new attachment. And then that's kind of manifested in all these different people having children. And even to the point where like Freud was like psychoanalysis, he didn't even look at the person as a as a whole. He looked at the different personalities within the person as competing and working themselves mm-hmm. out within the person. So I just, I don't know. I don't really have a lot to say about this, but I just, I've been really fascinated. At it. And I think different people understand the world differently based on kind of the work they do and, and wh- what their, like their basic system is or no, what their unit is. So like, do you mm-hmm. look at the person? Right. Do you look at the state? Do you look at the nation? Or do you even look at a person as a collection of a whole bunch of different things? Like what is the unit? I think that's such an interesting question to ask. 
Yeah, for sure. And it can change your perspective about understanding a situation based on how you look at that. It's also helpful for helping to understand other points of view. Um, because yeah. if you're speaking on different you know, levels of approach, the propensity for miscommunication is very high. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. Some people are really, really tied to this um, see everything as an individual. Pull yourself mm-hmm. up by your own bootstraps. It's all about you and you can do it. But then other people want to say, well, it's really more of a systemic issue. You really, we really need to broaden our focus out mm-hmm. and look at the look at the thing as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, more Freudian psychoanalysis would be more looking at the yin and the yang, kind of working itself out, or the Jekyll and Hyde inside each person. Yeah, like I think so. in, Inside Out is a. I love that movie, kind of for that reason. Yeah. It shows like you have, what are the ones that she has in like anger, anger disgust, sadness, which is impressive that sadness was one in a children's movie. Yeah. So. Yeah. All these things that are that are inside you kind of vying for attention, vying yeah. for, you know, care and to be heard even within one person. Right. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. All right. So then uh, the next thing we wanted to talk about. And I don't really even know what we have to talk about here, but it could be really fun. I just have written so, up on the board. Let it burn. Yeah. Burn, baby, burn. So generally, we could just kind of classify this as an exercise in eschatology. Um, so talking kind of, well, you, okay, so you brought it up with a source you're reading right now, um, Plowing and Hope, right? Yeah. So um, a book. eschatology is about the end times. Right. So this is where you get people like pre-millennialists. Millennialists. Mm. Do you know what that means? Because I'm a little rusty. Okay. <laughs> well, premillennium is basically that um, it's... Well, okay, so within premillennium, you have it broken down into, because you'll have uh, disposition, dispensational rapture theology, premillennialism, and then just a more basic premillennium. But, like, basically, doesn't it mean that Christ comes before the thousand-year reign? Yes. Yeah, the millennium thousand, is the thousand-year reign of right. Christ. Right, so it's post-return. In, re- in and Revelation. Then, yeah. So premillennium is that the millennium comes after Christ's second return, and, and Christ inaugurates it with a second return. Post-millennialism, which mm-hmm. means that, the thousand-year reign of Christ happens, and then everybody gets all the believers get raptured out, right? Well, no, uh, postmillennial is not a rapture theology. That is pretty much confined to premillennialism. Okay, so premillennial is that we get raptured out before? Uh, well, okay, so the premillennial would the rapture would happen where? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, obviously, there's nuance in here, but <laughs> the idea would be that the rapture happens, and then and then judgment, and then they establish a thousand-year reign in which uh if i'm remembering correctly but then the devil still is the, the final death of the devil and the grave is not complete until after that thousand year reign okay um and then you have amillennialism right which just means there is no thousand there's no thousand uh, the thousand year reign was a metaphor for the age of the church is amillennialism yeah because the a means not at right. the beginning and then right. My professor said this word in class today, uh, Dr. Burris. I love this term. You have the pan-millennialism, which right. means everything will just pan out, pan in, out the in the end. end. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he said that for our statement of faith, we cannot take that position, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, yeah, so. But yeah, so eschatology is kind of the study of that and how it's all going to go down. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's been a wide variety of, of thought. I would say primarily, I would guess... Primarily what you're going to find, especially in, in conservative evangelicalism, is a type of premillennialism, although not exclusively, because um, premillennialism really had its day with, um, I think it was Hal Smith, I think was his name. Um, but some people like that who, like, for a long time, and even still to this day, like in some statements of faith, like to be accepted into some or- Christian organizations, like you have to adhere to a premillennialist view. So I think the reason that we bring this up... <laughs> not just to talk about it because it's fun, but it is fun, is that, you know, the way that you view something ending largely affects the way that you will live in the present, right? Exactly. So if you're working on a project, the way that you think that thing will be ending largely informs how you will conduct yourself while you work on it. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here with the end times. Like, what you think happens in the end really affects the way that you live now and especially when it comes to the earth and yeah whether you take a burn baby burn mentality. well let's, let's flush that out a little bit so different ideas let's just talk specifically like within these area these camps like 
what would happen to the earth uh, and humans like in some of these views. So like in your premillennialism, not always, but especially with dispensational. So the dispensationalist would be high rapture theology. So the, the righteous are raptured out and then the earth is basically destroyed. Right. And so I think where, you know, maybe this sounds a bit abstract, but where you, where you really see people saying this Mm -hmm. is like, Oh my gosh, things are so bad. And this is just what happens in the end times. It's just going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back and takes us all out of here. Mm -hmm. And basically that's the idea that we're just headed down a long steep hill until the thing just crashes into the blazing lake of fire. Which that would be definitely premillennialism because postmillennialism is exactly the opposite. Like the kingdom is growing until eventually, when Christ returns, it is more. Which I'm not. I don't know. I don't know all the ins and outs, but the idea is that when Christ returns, he is more putting like um, he he completes the work that was begun in Christ and through the Spirit throughout, you know, however many years has come to fruition with the kingdom of God being realized on earth. And, and so when Christ comes the second time, it is the final stamp of arrival of the kingdom of God. Yeah, so it seems like kind of within the, the discussion, there's mm-hmm. I, I think there's kind of two, no, I shouldn't say there are two, but there are two, t- to my knowledge, kind of basic paradigms. Mm-hmm. Well, the paradigm is the world is going to be destroyed, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't matter what happens to it now, versus... The world is going to be remade, and we're going to live on it again with Christ. Mm-hmm. And that work has already started happening. What's the Rich Mullins line? I think it's such a perfect line. He says, "Wasn't well, like the day that Christ came into the world, the old world started dying, and the new world started yeah. being born." And so, I guess from Rich Mullins' perspective, uh, "Land of My Sojourn." Yeah, it's yeah. in his song. Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought maybe it was just a line. He yeah, said. no, yeah. that's "Land of My Sojourn." Yeah, I have to listen to that song. Yeah, he, you know, from kind of that perspective, and it's the one that I think is is mm-hmm. better. Is it's like. No, <laughs> we're not all just going to burn. You can't just destroy the environment and kill everything because it's going to mm-hmm. you know, go to hell anyway. It's with the, with the coming of Christ, we were the kingdom. The kingdom has started coming already. Yeah. And we are called to work for that until everything is finally made new. Yeah. And like I, I think the tension then that you find in working this out is kind of the two ditches you can fall into, I think, are classified as an overrealized eschatology and an underrealized eschatology. And that being that an overrealized would be that the uh, you understand the kingdom come um, in ways that have not been, um, I guess you could say, put forth by the Spirit. Or the Spirit has not worked that out yet in history. So what I mean by that is when you have an overrealized eschatology, um, you may be more prone to writing the work of the Spirit out of the equation and see it more as a purely human endeavor. Okay, um, so like through preserving the environment and making the world better, we kind of turn the world into a utopia. Right. Slowly. Right. right. Versus the other way, which is more what you've been detailing is underrealized eschatology, which it's all going to burn. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I can go change my oil in the river and I can yeah, destroy the ozone, whatever. It doesn't matter because... God's going to... It's going away anyway. We're going to heaven. We're not about to live on this right. earth anymore. Right. And yeah. so the faster we can... Yeah. But I mean, that's 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 the general idea. Um, and, you know, our bodies, as well as our bodies, like we're leaving our bodies anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't need our bodies because we're souls is kind of the idea of an yeah. underrealized eschatology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or that we have a soul and this immaterial soul part of us. I'm not saying we don't have a soul, but this immaterial soul part will escape the confines of the physical um, and we'll be floating up there on the clouds playing harps. Yeah. And it's just all kind of abstract and ethereal. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the caricature, but there's also, I mean, caricatures are caricatures because they also represent some of the truth. Yeah. So I think, yeah, while we might be character- caricaturing that, that view a little bit, there's those are some of the claims subtly being made and exclusively being made. Yeah, so do you have something um, to read on this point? So, well, so in Plowing and Hope, the part you sent, um, the one section talked about the possibility well it focuses a lot on uh end of revelation where it talks about the kings of the earth bring their glory into the new jerusalem Mm -hmm. so um which i I don't know the book so is that kind of the context of the book anyway i don't know the reading i think that i sent you was just a reading we did for class okay so i don't have the book i don't know okay but the idea there was is the author was making a case for how we should understand like what exactly are you know, the kings and leaders of the world bringing in to the new Jerusalem. And so like, these are things that actually like continued on in the age to come. Um, Like they were not destroyed. There was something about them that was 
beautiful, good, and true that still remained that in the new life of Kingdom Come. Yeah, and I don't know what part I see copied onto your Word document, but basically this guy, Bruce Hegeman, I guess that's how you say mm-hmm. it, he's basically arguing that, and and he, I, I really appreciate him because he's willing to engage with some of the Scripture that maybe looks like it doesn't mm-hmm. kind of fit with his point of view. Yeah. And if we have time, we can talk about that a little yeah, bit. Then. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's arguing that not only do we go to heaven, which, and he doesn't really use the word heaven. Like he's he's really conceptualizing it as the way it's laid out in Revelation, the New Jerusalem. It is a city. It is a huge. It's a cube, and it has mm-hmm. you know all these dimensions, and it has these precious stones and everything. And he actually thinks that not only do we get to go and enjoy life with God in that city forever, where there is no sun because you know. Christ is there and he is the light. Right. And there's no temple because the Lord dwells there. He actually says that, you know, the things that we're making on this earth right now, you know, the things that we're building with our own hands or maybe even in some way the podcast that we're making will actually be there decorating the city in a very real way. So some um, examples he uses are like are ways that men have taken to the task of creation in the world mankind, men and women, mm-hmm. that are like um, in keeping with the cultural mandate. When when God said to rule the earth, subdue it, and go out into it. So he uses the reference of like the Golden Gate Bridge, which he just thinks is like a marvelous work of, you know, uniting man-made mm-hmm. thing with creation, the way that it sits over the harbor and all, everything like that. There's another uh, house he mentions, Falling House. I don't know that one. Something like that. But he really thinks that the things that we're making are not going to burn in the end. Mm-hmm. He thinks that like if they're worthwhile, good, true, and beautiful, they will be in the new city. I, it's just a fascinating idea to me. Yeah, and I think like um, well, kind of the curtail on some of what we talked about last week. But um, what was kind of interesting of of um, like uh, understanding of works that throughout history are are really good. So like you know, a work of Beethoven is good, beautiful, and true. And so I think like in this author's, you know, word, we could assume that because it's good, beautiful and true, it will continue on um, in the life to come. And so, you know, the the implication then, if your heart is one that is not stirred and moved and your affections are not moved and stirred by something like Beethoven, which has been tried and true as something good, beautiful and true, then it is your heart's desires that need curving versus that you need better work and if that you know um you know your local if your your heart's desires are more piqued by your local hip-hop station that songs rotate in and out every three months that aren't going to last and are not good beautiful and true mm-hmm. um you know like your if your heart's desire is turned towards that and not towards you know being able to appreciate a beethoven like you may have some work to do in the kingdom come <laughs> to curb yeah. your desire yeah, and so kind of back what I was, I think we kind of started this discussion with, when we talk about the way that we view the end is is mm-hmm. going to impact our behavior now. Um, this was also a different professor who was talking. He said there are kind of three approaches that we tend to take. One is it's all getting worse, so we need to just hide in the church, church basement and wait for Jesus to come back and save us and take us out of here. Mm-hmm. The second approach that we sometimes take is that things are bad here, but when we read scripture, it does seem like we're supposed to go out there and do something. And in the end, it's not going to make a difference because it's all going to burn. But God said so. So like go out there and love people and do your best. And then kind of this third orientation is that we recognize that the things that we're doing now are building the kingdom and will last forever. We're a part of the new creation that's getting started. Mm-hmm. And it seems like maybe that's kind of a better orientation to take. Yeah. Yeah. And and I was thinking even today some about um like how that affects how you see even what your calling is in the world um instead of seeing as like i need to make a difference in this world or you know even the kind of Mm -hmm. idea you know the the ship is sinking grab as many souls on the lifeboat as you can kind of an idea um you know like dr wanner says like instead of you know trying to save those souls why don't we try to save the ship as well yeah rebuild um, the ship yeah rebuild the yeah. ship and and i think that's really important because i think it it reframes how you approach everything like what you're saying you know the end redefines you know how how you live your day today because i think instead of living a life to make a difference you simply are to live the life that god gives you 
um, because the the life that God gives you um, is part of God's redemptive work in the world towards this telos. And so you spend the majority of your life maybe mowing grass, changing diapers, doing laundry, but it's towards this teleological end. Yes. And, and therefore, it's an important and honorable and even holy work because it will be something that that work will be um, something that propels you and, and that animates the work in current history towards the end of new creation. Yeah. And if sense. this Bruce guy is right, it will even in some way be the furniture in the new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Like it will even be there. And, you know, I think where this is to piggyback on what you said, why this really matters is it can be discouraging. I think to think of maybe I do all this work and maybe no one ever notices mm-hmm. And if you think that our job is just to try to save people off of a sinking ship, that way they have salvation in the end, that mm-hmm. can get pretty depressing. And I even think there's just something kind of fundamentally wrong with people. <laughs> they say, but even if one soul is saved, you know, if mm-hmm. we go out there and we do these marches and we have these concerts and we do these things, if one soul is saved, then it was all worth it. Mm-hmm. And I think what this perspective is saying is, well, even if no souls are saved, it was still worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you go out there and you you do good work and it's true and beautiful, even if no souls are saved, it's still worth it. Mm-hmm. Even if like you change diapers and you mow grass and no one ever thanks you for it, or if you're mowing a field that no one even ever sees, that is still worth it right. because you're still you're doing the work of the kingdom. And when you have that perspective, it doesn't matter if anyone sees it or if any souls are saved because that's the work you're supposed to do. Right. Um and, and I like that he highlighted because a lot of times what can be re- the, the passage of scripture that is often brought up then in these conversations is the passage from First Peter or Second Peter uh, 3, um, which talks about um, it burning, the elements being destroyed by fire. Yeah. And so, like, I appreciate he dealt with that a little bit. Do you um, have that scripture? I could look it up. Well, yeah, if you pull that up, I'll, I'll talk what, a little what bit. What is it, Second Peter? Second uh, Peter 3, 6, and 7. Okay. Um, but I... I like that he brought it up because a lot of times this can be like, well, see, the world is going to burn because it does talk about what dissolving, destroying um, has some of those of that terminology in it. Yeah. You want me to just read it? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, This is the NIV. Second Peter three. But they deliberately forget that long ago by the by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of waters and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely some burning language there. Yeah. And so I'll walk through just a couple different ways real quick. We could talk about a couple different ways to you know understand what's actually happening in this passage. Um so N.T. Wright's done some good detailed work with this passage, and, and his main point is that Peter is not talking about um, the material reality of space, time, and matter being burnt up and destroyed. He's more talking, and the whole ethos kind of of his letter here is um, that has more to do with um, like testing everything out for what its true value is. And mm-hmm. so the idea could be like even with like apocalyptic literature, like in, in the literal sense of what apocalypse meant in – in um, you know, in ancient Greek, was the idea that uh, it was a revealing. It wasn't like you know when we think apocalypse now when people are born of the apocalypse. There's a different connotation to it, and the the connotations that if you were first century Roman or Greek hearing these things, you would have thought of revealing or unveiling. And so kind of a, I think you can kind of think of it as like a pulling back of the curtain. Yeah. You know, um, you know how James K. Smith talks about it some about how apocalyptic apocalyptic literature does this is that um, as humans we are kind of an Augustinian understanding like we're desiring we're, we're creatures defined by our loves and so what we love is our true telos and in fact we may not love what we think we love mm-hmm. and it takes that unveiling to pull back the curtain of what where our desires really and are and that's kind of this fire that comes is right. kind of a yeah I think in the reading I'll see if I can maybe post the reading if anyone cares to read it I don't know if I can or not but Hegemon, he talks about how in the Old Testament, there is another image of this consuming fire of God, mm-hmm. but it descends down onto the temple yeah. and like purifies it. And the temple is not consumed. And so he's he's read, kind of using that to read that the things that we do in this world, when the when the fire comes to burn it, you know, what is I think what is good and beautiful will remain as a 
like a sanctified kind of offering to decorate the new Jerusalem. Yeah. And what's not worthwhile will burn away. So it's yeah. not to say that everything we do here will be forever, but some of it might be. It's it's kind of like it's it's um uh well Christopher Wright describes it as it's the purging fire of God's judgment of work um on the mm. earth with how he how um in Peter it talks about how these things will be found out. Um is kind of the terminology. In fact, he says that um at the time of the King James version um, like he traces this line of thinking about why everything's going to be destroyed is because in the King James Version, the only available Greek manuscripts had the final verb of the sentence that you just read, that they will burn up. Um, but now there have been newer manuscripts um, found, and this the word is translated there, they will be found instead of they will burn. Um, so, so, yeah, more like everything burned away from, every excess burned away yeah. instead of completely destroyed. And so like in First Peter then, um, it also talks about uh, the, the same context of fire, um, of a purging judgment of fire, and how Peter uses it there. He says, so that's your faith of greater worth than gold, which purges even though refined by fire, mm-hmm. may be proved, or this word found, may be found genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Um, so again, he says we should understand the destructive fire of this passage. It's the fire of God's moral judgment, which, which will destroy all that is wicked but will purify all that is good, um, uh, including, yeah, I think he makes it clear, like including, including humans within that, including, including our loves mm-hmm. um, and, and things like that. And he also says like in Second Peter 3.11, like just down from where you read, like it's important to notice that it compares the fire of God's judgment to the floodwaters of Noah's day. And so like in the floodwaters, there was destruction, but it was more of a purification because it talks about how the evil had completely polluted the land. Yeah, it was, it was like a baptism of the earth and, yeah. and God's purpose was carried on that flood and not destroyed. Right. And so like the earth was not destroyed in that, mm-hmm. but it was refined by that um, as part of God's work yeah. and his purposes in the world. I think it's, it's such an interesting idea. And yeah. So what do you think this means for people who are um, toiling at tasks they don't see any significance in? Um, I think the main thing is that that's not how we're to find value in the first place um, necessarily. We aren't supposed to look for meaning in doing something spectacular, being remembered. It's simply doing um, whatever it is, the the gift of the life that God has given us to live in part of this teleological end. Um, and and I think it ushers in, I mean, having this kind of hope for the end ushers in a whole new realm of possibilities with how you approach the everyday. Because, um, you know, like, I mean, for both of us, probably most of our days are spent paying the bills, keeping up with work, trying to take care of our wives, and for me, trying to take care of kids, changing his diapers, whatever else. And that pretty much is all we can even do right now. And for most people, that's all you can really do. And um, But perhaps because you're doing the Lord's work and the re- towards this redemptive end, therefore it yeah. is meaningful. No, I think that's yeah. exactly it. You're doing the Lord's work. I, I think sometimes we get caught into this thing of we don't think that our work is holy enough. And so... Mm-hmm. We either try to do better work, like we try to go be a pastor or something mm. that we think is more sacred, or I think actually what I often see us doing, and I probably do myself, is we just try to, we, we think our, our work needs baptism. Yeah. So, you know, if you give someone a ride, if you pick someone up and give a homeless person a ride, you try and make sure and pray with them before you let them go, just so like they can know that like you're a Christian and you mm. kind of made this a sacred experience. But I think if, if what we're talking about is right, just give the person a ride and like that is a, a holy work and if you sweep floors at a warehouse mm-hmm. you know it's it's sacred work that you're doing if, if you recognize it as as god's work all well, work is yeah. god's work because that's the exact point there because if you if you recognize that the scope of the redemption of all things is cosmic it is actually all things <laughs> it is actually all things and yeah. It, yeah so it's cosmic so that means that it's not just that you preached and went somewhere or that you you know not that those things are bad like those things should be done but those aren't the only things that should be done the Um, fact that other people recognize it does not make it good or not good right um and i think that's important and um i noticed he he referenced a quote that's stuck in my mind for for several years um from martin luther oh yeah i was gonna say this yeah yeah yeah. yeah, go ahead no it's fine um but I, I, can't, I, um, I don't have he a said, word for word. But. He said, if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. Right. And the idea is that I would do 
something for the future now, even if I didn't think it was going to last. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, because um, it's a question I thought about a bunch of the last two weeks um, that just as far as me teaching, like posing the question to my students, like if you knew you were going to drive home from graduation night and be killed in a car wreck, would you still go through this education? I think, you know, knee-jerk reactions a lot of times would be like, no, I'm going to go hike the, you know, Andes Mountains or whatever else it might be or travel the world kind of thing. But I think with this kind of view in mind, then as education, you know, I'm just strictly talking education, education is training the heart in virtues Mm -hmm. because this training is how your heart's going to be need, need to be trained in any way to appreciate and, and live in the kingdom come. And so therefore it's not wasted, even though you didn't get to hike, yeah, the Andes mountains because you may be able to in the life to come. Anyway, I yeah, mean, it's kind of a it might still bar, be there. Yeah, I don't think it's impossible. So, um, oh, I had something I was gonna say, a question, but I don't remember it. Go plant trees, make babies, and <laughs> see if we can bring this full circle. And get and get eat, uh, eat fast food eat and enjoy fast food. your fast food. And have a great Valentine's Day. Oh man, there was another thing. We're kind of out of time, so we'll do it next time. Maybe I was gonna ask whether TikTok is a relevant place to preach the gospel because that would Ooh. be an interesting thing let's talk about tiktok next week next week yeah i've got some thoughts about tiktok tiktok next week and um man i really wish i could remember what i was going to say because i wanted to ask it that's okay thank you guys for being with us on episode two we're doing some awesome renovations to our studio actually tomorrow so it probably won't affect anything that you hear but it's <laughs> it's going to be awesome for us really looking forward to that we've also got some giveaways that are coming up So be on the lookout for that. We're really looking to grow kind of our social media presence. And by we, I mean David, who is doing the social media for all of Eagle Radio here at TFC. Be on the lookout for some cool giveaways. You might could win some stuff. Hope you guys have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week here on the Abstract Podcast.